everyone. Uh, thank you so much for coming to our second seminar of the term. And we are very delighted to have Kieran McAvoy today as our speaker. And before I introduce Kieran, I just want to quickly uh, distribute our term card again, just in case you haven't received it through all the channels I've been <laughs> <laughs> distributing it already. So if you don't want it, just like ignore it. <laughs> and and I'm also, I also wanted to um, pass around our m sign up sheet for the mailing list. So if you weren't there last uh, week, so um, it's a great way of just uh, getting some updates on our activities, projects, and seminars. And I should also say, um, if, you, if you're interested, we are recruiting at the moment uh, members for our executive committee. The application deadline is on Sunday, 25th of October, I believe. Uh, so please, if you're interested in judicial justice, consider applying. If you're on the mailing list, I will also send around a reminder with all the information on how you apply. So if you're interested, please sign up for the mailing list. You can just pass it around. Thank you so much. Okay, that brings me to Kieran. Um, so Professor Kieran McAvoy is Professor of Law and Transitional Justice and a Senior Research Fellow at the Institute of Conflict Transformation and Social Justice at the Queen's University Belfast. And he, uh, his research interests include transitional justice, human rights, the sociology of the legal profession, comparative legal studies, and restorative justice, amongst many others. And he has written or edited six books and has written over 50 journal articles. Which None of them are any good. <laughs> <laughs> well, actually, the next session refutes that because he is the previous winner of the British Society of Criminology uh, Book of the Year Award, and he also won three times uh, the Socio-Legal Studies Association Article of the Year. So at least three of them weren't that bad. <laughs> Um, and he also uh, he has been a visiting scholar at the most prestigious law schools in the world. I, I'm not going to read through all of them. <laughs> and he's also a long-term human rights activist, and actually he is currently leading a project in Northern Ireland, which is drafting um, a shadow dealing with the past bill. <coughs> and this is mirroring the, the bill which the British government is going to be present in three weeks, hopefully. And actually, this, this uh, shadow bill will be launched tonight at the House of Parliament at 6.30. So if you want to come uh, after the seminar, you rush to London, you go to the House of Parliament, and you can be there for the launch event. Uh, so please join me all now in welcoming Kieran to our seminar. Thank you very much for having me back, folks. Um, I did one of these a few years ago. Uh, Normally when I come to Oxford, I love Oxford, and so normally when I come to Oxford, I, I, I enjoy uh, going out for a few pints with the students. And we weren't uh, we weren't doing this thing tonight in London, and I certainly would have been well up for that. So uh, apologies. Uh, I'm sure there'll be a big orderly queue, obviously, like rushing down to London to, to see a thing. Uh, so the the when I when I uh, um, do talks, uh, I. Um, I rarely present a finished product, basically, you know, so this is an early, very early, as, as will become apparent when I start talking about it, this is an early iteration of this, this will become an, uh, hopefully a post journal article um, and a chapter in the book from the project in, in about a year's time or so. Um, it, the project, uh, we're doing a big comparative project on the role that lawyers play in uh, conflict and transition. It grew out of work that I did at home. Um, my PhD was on political prisoners at home. 
And doing that, I got interested in the relationship between political prisoners, uh, both loyalists and republicans, and their lawyers, and how that played into the resistance strategy that political prisoners deployed. And then I got interested in the lawyers themselves and how the lawyers managed those relationships uh, with, the, uh, with their, their clients, their paramilitary clients. Um, and so I wrote a piece a few years ago called What the Lawyers Do During the War. I interviewed that, that project about 50 lawyers, I think. Um, and so on the back of that, the way these things work is then you, you think, okay, well, I've done a bit. Then you, you, you pitch for a bigger comparative grant. If you, you know, do one jurisdiction, you think, okay, we'll try, we'll test, road, road test this somewhere else. So we pitched for, and we're successful in getting a big ESRC grant. It's a three-year project, and we're, we're at the end of year two now. Um, and it's on lawyers in conflict and transition. So we've done 123 interviews in uh, six countries, Tunisia, South Africa, Chile, Israel, Palestine, and Cambodia, responded by the ESRC. Um, uh, we've, and it, it, we've generated a huge amount of data in those interviews. Lawyers are great interviewees, because they talk. And, uh, you know, they're, 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 and they're good at abstraction, or sometimes they're good at abstraction. They, love, they certainly love talking about themselves, you know. And, uh, so uh, we, every interview is like an hour, an hour and a half. It's just huge. We're swimming in data, and all of it is rich and, and lovely. And the, one of the things that I, I, I would do quite a lot of comparative work in recent years, and one of the things, and I think it was based probably on, in, on our own uh, experiences in Northern Ireland as well, of being interviewed, being the interviewee, um, and uh, sometimes the people doing comparative work, there's a sense of uh, instrumentalization that in effect you are, you know, people come and fly in, do a blast of field work and then they leave and what do you get? Um, what does the interviewee get or the local community get, etc. And that's particularly strongly felt, I think, in the developing world. Um, and so as part of that project, we promised, probably over-promised, um, a lot of work to put stuff back. So basically in each jurisdiction, we're doing two bespoke reports on, which are translated then into the local languages and um, on what uh, our interviewees want. So basically at the end of every interview we ask them is there anything we could usefully do that might be helpful to you um, and uh, we then collate those and we say okay well it will do those two for Israel, those two for Palestine, those two. So for example on, in, uh, in the uh, Palestinian context, well I'm, I'm working on that one at the moment, that's why it's fresh, um, we're, we're doing one on the politics of boycott, lawyers boycotting legal proceedings, because it's very, a very lively debate within the Palestinian human rights community about whether or not they should take part in military courts and, and, and when, you know, when their chances of delivering justice in verdict comments for their clients are um, minimalistic. And so they were particularly interested in that, and they were also interested in prison struggle at home. So those are, we've done those two reports, they're now, get, they're now translated into um, uh, uh, both Arabic and Hebrew, and so on. So we do that for each jurisdiction. So anyway, it means it's shed loads of work in this. You know, so we did, we did 12 of those, and then we're doing three user reports for, for international lawyers in a usable line, blah, blah, blah. It just tons of work, basically. You know? and, then, so anyway, and then we got to write up the theory stuff and blah. This paper I'm going to focus uh, predominantly on uh, South Africa, I think, because it's probably the richest in this context. Um, so as I said, uh, the paper comes from two two directions, the dialectic of how, on the one hand, the IRA, over a period of, uh, as, they, as they aren't going, which you may have seen in the news yesterday, it still exists apparently, it's a big shock. Um, the, uh, so uh, the way in which the IRA, uh, as an organisation, and political prisoners in particular, used law and lawyers as part of their struggle, and the way in which lawyers responded to that. Uh, in, the, in the local context, what that meant is that the, the Republicans historically didn't recognise the court. They would have seen the court as... Um, a symbolic and practical expression of British occupation in, in the north of Ireland. 
and therefore they had a non-recognition strategy and so in Jerry Adams' autobiography for example um, he talks about knitting and stuff like this during the court refusing to, you know, being disrespectful to the judge not speaking and so on and so forth funnily enough, ju- judges being what they are they were not hugely enthusiastic of people being disrespectful of the court and so a lot of them uh, didn't get off <laughs> funnily enough um, and so what happens then is that the lawyers in particular are saying to um, Republicans look this is a shit case against you. You know, this. Why are you doing this? You are playing into the hands of um, the prosecuting prosecuting authorities here. You've, they're putting very weak cases forward, and this is also during the era of internment as well. But they're putting weak cases forward, and actually, if you fought these cases, more people would get off. And then, I guess the, what happens then is the IRA reconfigure their ideological position, and then they fight everything basically. So I used to work for NACRO, which is a prison rights or like NACRO here. Um, I was, and I was I used to do prison rights work, and so by the time that I was working there in the mid nineties, um, half of all judicial reviews um, in in the jurisdiction as a whole were prison related, pr- political prisoners challenging everything that moved. Like you know, like so they would they got legally aided, so everything was legally aided, and it became it transmogrified into a strategy of struggle. And part of that, the, the way in which law becomes part of the struggle, is the lawyers themselves were influential in shaping the, the, the attitude towards... So anyway, that's where, that's where it comes from. It's a uh, relationship between uh, military movements, uh, ideology, political ideology, and, 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 and the legal training of, of lawyers. In the middle of all of that, in all of the jurisdictions that we've looked at, you have tensions between the lawyers themselves... Um, and their governing bodies, the bar associations, the law societies. Usually, almost universally, they are very conservative institutions. They are usually the body that regulates the legal profession, that, that develops standards of professionalism, and so on and so forth. Um, and for, for lawyers who are doing this kind of work, working with terrorists, working with paramilitary organizations, etc., quite often they would be shunned within the profession, not always, but quite often they would be shunned within the profession and they would have very difficult relationships with their governing body. So for, to, to give you an, an illustration, in the Northern Ireland context, very high profile case, Pat Finucan, who was uh, murdered by um, lo- uh, loyalist paramilitaries in collusion with the state. Um, Prime Minister apologised on behalf of the British state uh, t- uh, two years ago on this. Um, but his own, uh, the law society in Northern Ireland uh, did not um, condemn his murder in any kind of strong terms, did not attempt to come together with the human rights movement in protesting and so forth. It's a conservative, they tend to be conservative institutions, right? Um, in our context, the, the management of this relationship between lawyers and uh, their clients, who are political or military actors, um, was in some ways, well, at least the way in which lawyers exp- expressed it, was in some ways less interesting, I think, than the, way, the, the, the versions I'm going to talk about in a moment, in that the way in which uh, I'm a lawyer as well. The way in which uh, all of us were educated as lawyers and the vast majority of lawyers went through Queens um, at home was the notion of professional neutrality. That you know, you represent your client doesn't mean you should you're seen to be sharing the interests or ideology of your client. You are detached. You are the professional. You are doing your best in the courtroom as you should, or in the solicitor's office. But that's what you are. You are a professionally neutral actor, and so. Right across the spectrum, when I was doing the interviews at home, that was the, the standard response from quite radical lawyers as well. So even some of the most radical lawyers who were doing this kind of work, their, their, their default position was that notion of professional neutrality. I'm a lawyer, this is what, what, what I do. Um, that said, they would still be viewed as troublemakers, some of these people who are doing this kind of work. But their, 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 their default position um, is, is that. They are, uh, they are professionally neutral. And in, in that piece, I was quite critical of lawyers um, for uh, basically allowing a culture of quietism to develop, uh, where lawyers saw their jobs essentially as legalistic jobs, 
and so didn't stand up for the rule of law, didn't stand up for human rights in public discourse. They were not uh, mobilising around, and uh, not providing leadership in the way that lawyers do in other jurisdictions. So this project is not so much looking at the uh, technical legal stuff, it's more looking at the notion of the lawyer as a social, political and moral actor. Okay? Um, the, some of you will be familiar with this, and, and I'm not going to get too lost in the, in the literature. So when you move towards this notion of, okay, well, what, so if we're moving towards the idea of the lawyer as something more than simply a technicist, someone who is doing more than, um, who, who is a, a social or a, or a political actor, the big literature on this is called cause wiring, right? And uh, Sarah and Skangold have got several very famous collections of um, going through all of the variants of this. And there's lots of rich stuff in it. That, so you see there, Michalowski, for example, um, lawyers who self-define as cause lawyers, pursuing social change by making a self-conscious choice to give priority to the cause rather than to the client they serve. So, for example, that might make this, that might um, feed into decisions you would make about which clients you represent, what are good cases and you know, blonde cases are sometimes they're referred to in the literature and what aren't. Um, and you know, so the cause is, 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 is part of what you're doing, not simply serving each and every client. Um, it's a, an acknowledgement of, cause learning is an acknowledgement of the politics of law, essentially. So you will get, um, in, in, the, in the, version of, the version of legal education that I am, and probably people of my generation and before um, received, we were just taught the law is the law is the law. There is no politics, there is the law. It's a deeply positivistic notion of law. It doesn't stand up to any kind of sustained rigorous inquiry, and particularly in a conflict, you know, where the law is at, is the, at the epicenter of the state's response to political violence. So cause lawyers tend to be much more um, upfront about the politics of law and legality and, and, and accepting that they are essentially um, political actors. Rick Abel's written a lot about this as of others. It's been referred to by me as a form of moral activism. Um, and what's kind of rich now, and, and we're going to write one of the myriad papers if we live long enough um, on this project, is that the Historically, what one would see in this literature is a leftist focus, as you would expect. You know, it comes from the states in the kind of late 60s and 70s, you know, the uh, advances in civil rights and so on and so forth. Um, where it has, where it has kind of gone through this cause learning is quite a lot of rightist cause lawyers now. So we interviewed, for example, settler lawyers in Israel, um, who, uh, and, you know, they, they self, very strongly self-identify as cause lawyers. We are cause lawyers. We believe in the cause, settler cause and so forth. In the states, you will get anti-abortion cause lawyers, pro-gun rights cause lawyers, and so forth. And it's quite, so you're getting quite a nice twist on the literature now in terms of this rightist stuff. It's not just um, uh, 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 left, liberal, etc. And, and what we also find in, in, in our stuff, which again is another sub-paper we're going to do, is uh, the notion that you could be a cause lawyer within the state legal apparatus, which is quite a rich one. And it, we, it's a, it, there's not much written on this yet. We're hoping to, to get something out probably the year after next on it. Uh, and this came from, we, we interviewed, we wanted to interview people across the political spectrum, um, right and left, but also within the state structures. Um, and what was quite interesting for us, um, and it came from Israel actually, uh, was people who were, who self-identified as cause lawyers and they were working within the state structures um, and for the state of Israel. Mm. And so one very uh, senior uh, figure within that, uh, in an interview of asked, well how do you, you say you are a cause lawyer, tell us what your cause is as a, someone, this is a career civil servant lawyer basically, within the Israeli system. And he says, well, as far as I'm concerned, my job is to stop mad shit happening. Mm -hmm. um, I, really? <laughs> yes, that's my cause. My cause is stopping mad shit. I mean, as you'll be aware, you know, a, a lot of 
I'm very confident mad shit is, which this race not mine. A lot of mad shit has happened here, and but my job is stopping even madder shit. You know, I thought that's a really interesting version of cross lawyering. You know, you're kind of seeing yourself as a political actor within a, an infrastructure, and you're heading off at the past mad stuff, but you're not doing it in a way where you're self, you know, you're where you're only seeing yourself as a technicist. You're seeing yourself as a political small p, but a political actor. And so, anyway, that's what we're we're looking at that bit as well. There's a rich literature on this stuff, as you would expect, on the ways in which uh, uh, lawyers manage their relationship with clients. And probably in the, I think this is the kind of stuff I'll put in the introduction to the article when I, when, when I actually write it up. Different typologies of, the, of that, the management of that relationship. So the, 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 the lawyer is the defender of the unpopular client, Atticus Finch, Killer Mockingbird. The detached professional, this is again, a lot of literature is American. Um, uh, is David Wilkins, uh, who's um, a very uh, prominent African American lawyer in Harvard, and he's written quite a famous piece about should black lawyers represent the KKK? You know, again, it's questions of um, uh, political uh, neutrality. Um, uh, Pepper has this notion about the amoral lawyer. You know, this is basically if it's lawful, it's professional. You got to do it basically in the in the interests of your uh, your client. You you go for it. That's what you do. You push the parameters. You, you stretch as far as you can because your, your central loyalty is to your client. So if it's lawful, it's professional. That's, uh, that's one version of the management. Uh, Lubin has a, a, a different version of the morally activist lawyer, which basically, which is a kind of, it's a check on this amorality uh, in terms of lawyering, in that you shouldn't, if you are a, a proper moral lawyer, you shouldn't, for example, do ruthless cross-examination of rape victims when you know that that's an immoral thing for you to do as a lawyer. That actually there are moral parameters, not simply legal parameters. That's the opposite of the shark, if you like, um, notion of the lawyer uh, as planned. It's a, there are moral parameters that you should, uh, you should observe as, as, um, as a lawyer. Free talks about the lawyer as the friend of the client, um, uh, Halliday has a, a notion about civic profession, blah, blah. There's lots of uh, rich sociolegal uh, literature on this, on how um, the, the, the lawyer manages relationships with clients. I think one of the arguments that, that I hope to develop in this paper is that actually there are particular challenges um, in the management of relations with political and military movements, and where those become probably most challenging is when you actually to a greater or lesser extent, share the, the political objectives of your clients. You know, if, 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 so what I'm trying to do is kind of nudge this conversation along, away from professional neutrality, to actually in a situation, for, so for example, Palestinian lawyers, um, share broadly the political objectives um, of, of their clients and the occupation. That's, you know, that is a shared political objective. Now, they may not, that doesn't mean they support every tactic that um, Hamas or Fatah or other factions would employ, but they share, there's a shared political vision, a shared political ideology here. And so I'm kind of in, and they're very self conscious of themselves as political actors. And I'm kind of interested in, in, in this, you know, and this nudging away from the professionally neutral lawyer. So when you, in a, we started coding this stuff, we were using in vivo, first time I've tried to use it. Um, and we're using it, we, we, these are, these are, these are uh, some of the different uh, typologies of the cause lawyer, and then we're going to see if we can fit these in, basically, I think, down the line, where they, in terms of the management of the relationship. So the neutral lawyer, we've got the last stuff on that. The sympathetic hired gun, the pro bono cause lawyer. One of the interesting things when you do this stuff is the uh, importance of charge and cost around this. So sometimes clients, um, particularly in South Africa, for example, uh, thought that their, that their lawyers were acting for free. And that was part of, uh, quite an important part of 
for political actors, um, so for members of, of the ANC, MK, or the other uh, uh, liberation uh, movements in South Africa, they thought that their lawyers, because they were struggle lawyers, were uh, acting for free, and they weren't. Um, well, some were, but many weren't. And but that so the, the issue of charge and cost actually uh, is quite significant in, in, in all of this. And um, the jaded obsessive, uh, there. Are, <laughs> there are lots of jaded obsessives in this line of work, you know. Uh, jaded obsessive lo- uh, lawyers are lawyers who've been at this maybe for too long, uh, and they're uh, they're kind of maybe a bit burnt out, and uh, they're. Uh, I, 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 anyway, I, I think I might even pull that one out and stick it into it. I've got about four out of the 123 who just fit this typology perfectly, and I kind of don't know what to do with it. You know, it's just so rich, you know. And, uh, I'm not unsympathetic to these people have been struggling for justice for years, but they're kind of stuck. Uh, I, I might pull that one out. The, the Latin American stuff around college lawyers has a, quite a lot of stuff with this notion of the lawyer as a broker, lawyers as, a, a, as people who can manage and, and act as a broker in relationships, for example, with outside international human rights movements. Um, big, that was a big issue within the Chilean context. You know, the lawyers became central conduits for information about human rights to the outside world as to what was happening um, during the Pinochet era. Lawyers, lawyers have the space to move between different actors in society. Generally, they come, you know, they're, they're elite level actors, so they get space to move, to move around. So, and there's a lot of broker stuff. Uh, this stuff is big in South Africa. You know, the Johnny Come Lately, everybody's a struggle lawyer now. Um, uh, and you, you'll get so you'll get a generational tension between the Johnny Come Lately. Uh, I'm 48 now. I'm starting to. I'm sort of kind of. I think I'm moving into this probably. <laughs> like I know, like so yeah, people that I've been teaching for 20 odd years, and so people I've taught are now in the human rights movement at home, you know. And I'm a bit, you know, in my wee mind, I'm kind of, you know, the, the nasty buddy is going, you know, right here. Ah, oh, you're not. It's a lot bloody easier to be a lawyer nowadays. I tell you, you know, not whenever I were a lad. You know, there's a bit of that sort of, you know. Anyway, so there's a intergenerational tensions on the on the on the, the Cosler Cosler and State of Dom. This stuff, I think, is quite rich. I'm going to come back to this towards the end, which is the idea of the cause lawyer as a symbol of the struggle. Basically, there's something deeply noble about lawyers fighting for justice in the abstract and in reality. There's something deeply noble about it in any conflict. And what you see in particular in South Africa is a a eulogizing and a veneration of a generation of struggle lawyers from Mandela onwards. So a lot of the ANC leaders were themselves um, lawyers. And so there is a, a, the struggle lawyer allows and facilitates and encourages an imagining of the struggle that is quite clean, you know, in some ways. It is a noble uh, struggle. It is an, an, it, you know, it's a non-violent struggle if you're fighting for justice in the courtroom. And so the ugliness of armed struggle, the ugliness of violence and the ugliness of all of that can in some ways be imagined away by, the, by seeing the struggle through the prism of cause lawyering. By, by, so part of, I think, what is going on, and I, I, say I, haven't, I, I, I will, when I've written the draft, just run this past uh, South African colleagues to make sure I'm not talking complete nonsense. Um, but there is, there's something interesting, I think, here about the ways in which political and multi-struggle is imagined when the, when the cause lawyer is at the epicenter of that, when the cause lawyer is seen um, as, as the embodiment of all that is good and noble about the struggle, and all the messy reality um, of, of armed struggle and violence and civilians being killed and all of that stuff can in some ways be, be, be compartmentalised by the eulogising of the struggle lawyer and the revolutionary lawyer I'll go back the revolutionary lawyers are up front about what they're doing they're, they're n- never mind this namby pamby bourgeois legality nonsense like we're in the struggle and we've got some other so anyway lawyers that's, that's all the kind of theoretical contextual stuff um, 
So this is this is the man in terms of you know the embodiment of um, some of the, the manifest tensions around. On the one hand, uh, being a, a lawyer and by all accounts a very able lawyer, and on the other hand, you know, be, being the leader of an of, of an armed insurrection. You know, and and he's written his own autobiography. Has some very interesting reflections actually on on this uh, on how one manages those tensions. Um, and his journey, if you like, from efforts to use the law and the limitations of using law um, towards a gradual uh, becoming aware that our, his conclusion that armed struggle was the only way forward in South Africa and then, you know, coming back out of prison, becoming president and then again becoming a creature of the law and all of that. It's very interesting, but he's the embodiment, if you like, of, of, um, of, 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 of that and certainly of, of the, the, the tensions within uh, some of that. So uh, I'll just throw off some quotes now and again. Have a chat. This guy's brilliant. This guy, I love this guy. This guy's, this guy is a, a, he's an old veteran Marxist lawyer. He, uh, it's on the record, I think, you know. Yeah, it is. So and he's now the uh, um, uh, Chilean ambassador in Uruguay. Uh, so he's a very established guy now. Uh, and uh, well, you, you, can you read that all right, Jen? I don't need to read that. Do you see it all right at the back, or do you want me to read it? Yeah. Sorry, right, Jen. Just take, take your. He said, yeah, duh, in English, by the way. You know, so the, the rest was in Spanish, and then he said, yeah, duh, in English. <laughs> Which is very charming. <laughs> uh, so anyway, see, he's a revolutionary. He's a revolutionary lawyer. Like, it's like, you know, bourgeois legality, come on, like, you know, you're in a struggle against a military dictatorship. Get over yourself, you know? So it was quite, it was lovely, you know? Uh, this, is a, this, is a, this quote is from a legendary human rights lawyer in Israel. I mean, genuinely legendary. Um, this is a, uh, that was on the record as well. This is a, a, a very prominent... Um, woman lawyer has been um, acting for Palestinian clients. She's uh, Israeli acting for Palestinian clients for over 40 years, uh, and she's a, a kind of genuine kind of legend in this. Um, so the, for some for some lawyers who position themselves in this way, this, these tensions about professional neutrality and managing all of that. I mean, they're very upfront about this is what it is. Like you know, um, we we let's let's not get. Silly about this. Uh, this is a, this is a, a, a former uh, ANC lawyer. You know, just now, just now, again, these are on this, these are on the record. So, one of the ways that I kind of uh, went into this que uh, question in the interviews uh, was, so I, I asked them about professional neutrality, and then people would talk about in the abstract about professional neutrality, and then I would give them specific examples. Exemplars, and, and the one that I had, um, which is a very interesting one on this stuff, basically was how do you manage a situation as a lawyer when your client in a military or political movement asks you to pass on information to someone on the outside, mm -hmm. in the outside movement? And what that means in a military movement, obviously, is often if an operation has been compromised, it's an informer, and so you know, as a lawyer, you pass on information from your client inside the prison. To the movement on the earth, that may result in someone getting shot, right? Now, in a context where you share the political objectives of the movement per se, where, how do you manage that? That was where I was kind of going in those questions. Where, where you, so you share, like, so you're an ANC lawyer, and you share the political and military objectives of the ANC and the NK, and you know that the movement is hugely undermined by the by informers or the key strategy the state will employ in all of these jurisdictions. How do you manage that as a lawyer? Where are your, where's your ethical base? How do you manage? Will you pass on information? So that was where I was asking, and it's really rich, like the, and the, the, um, 
and the ways in which lawyers sort of dance around, dance, uh, around this issue. Um, so you'll see there, he says, uh, so many lawyers have no problem communicating information given to them by clients and others in accordance with the instruction of the client. That's a lovely lawyerly way. Mm. You know, so you, obviously your client is giving you instructions. That is part of your job, to take instructions from your client. Right? Now, what do those instructions look like? Because does your, if your client says, X is an informer, he compromised the operation, the reason we're all in here is because X is an informer. You pass that on to the movement on the outside. Is that, is that, is that, can you still live with that as an instruction from your client? You know, that's, that's the kind of uh, stuff we were uh, getting into. There's a symbolic stuff. This is, uh, in some ways, this is I mean, it's, it's rich, but it, it, it's um, more familiar. Um, it's about the, the, the symbolic use of the courtroom as a site of struggle. Um, and in some ways, that lawyers are comfortable enough with that one, you know. Uh, uh, you know, using the courtroom as a platform for brought to draw attention to um, uh, uh, human rights dimensions of struggle. You know, so the the the, the Mandela's trial is a is a is a is a version of political theatre. The actors are very self-aware. You know, the media's attention is on. I mean, the the, the another Israeli lawyer told us a great example of this. So, if they have a particularly uh, high-profile case that they want, uh, they want to put the wind up the judge. Right. What they'll do is, so Israelis, progressive Israeli lawyers representing Palestinian clients, if they want to put the wind up the judge, um, what they will do um, is that they will get friends in the Scandinavian um, embassies who uh, have to look very blonde, they have to look very blonde, and they set them at the back of the court. So basically, the idea is, that, and then sometimes if you can't actually get, you know, the, I don't know, Swedish ambassador or something, you just get people who, who look very blonde and you put them at the back and then it's clear, the idea is the eyes of the world are watching, you know, so, so judge, just so you realise the eyes, you know, that's, you know, we have, we're, and then you'll, in your speech to the, to the judge, you'll say, we're very pleased to welcome here the Norwegian ambassador and the, uh, the Danish ambassador and la, 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 and there's a kind of negotiation to give them presents because they're, they're, you know, you have to get, but it's theatre, right? this is, but this is, that, that most lawyers are very comfortable with that, you know, with the political platform aspects of legal, the, the, the court as a, as, a, as a forum for legal struggle. And, you know, people will push that, but actually the, the, the actors are all aware that's what they're doing in, in, in these high-profile cases. Even the judges are aware, you know, and so that, that one isn't as, in terms of the management of the relationship with the client and so forth, I mean, you're not, you, you will, like, going back to the IRA example, you will not, you will, if, you will say to your clients, don't, don't purposely disrespect the judge because you're, it will hurt your case. Do not do that. I'm not, you know, and so that you'll, you may have tensions there between the lawyer and the client about their demeanour and how they conduct themselves in court in the same way as you would in an ordinary magistrate's court, for example. If you go to, well, I know certainly the in Belfast, ordinary magistrate's courts can be zoos, like in terms of stuff, you know, and you're, like lawyers trying to manage clients and, you know, they're noisy places and all of that. So th there is this... A slight tension around that stuff, but it's nowhere near as manifest as, as the, other, the other elements of the lawyer-client relationship. Um, this is uh, Her Excellency Priscilla Jana, a former NC activist and struggle lawyer, so we're asking her the same question. She represented a lot of the senior people on Robben Island, um, and I, so I'm asking her about the same issue about passing information back and forward, and for her it's a badge of honour, basically. Um, you can see that. I believe in any conflict situation, it's very difficult for a lawyer to be strictly a lawyer. Um, and she's passing information back and forth all the time um, from 
from the prison to the movement on the outside. She sees herself as part and parcel of the movement, um, and as far as she she says, well, you know, that's that's what I did. This is another uh, very interesting uh, uh, man from a, actually from an Afrikaner background. Uh, give you a chance to read it. self-awareness of his utility in the struggle. Um, you know, he's from an African background. It gives him a certain relationship with the police and others. He's asked at one stage, he's, he's a prominent ANC activist in the underground, but he's asked, so the ANC is a political wing, MK is the military wing, and he's asked at one stage, um, would you like to join MK? And he's not a pacifist. And he says, well, I, I'm actually more useful to the struggle than, than if I get involved in MK. I can do more with my Afrikaner background and He's white, obviously, and if I, I, I can do more in the struggle as this, so no, I don't want to join NK. Um, I'm, I'm, I see myself. But he's very explicitly a political actor. He's also quite a brilliant lawyer, isn't he? Um, this, this will probably, I, I think I'll put this as a subheading, it just kind of jumps out at you uh, in, in, the, in the don't do stupid things. You know, so the question was, how do you manage this, the complexities and the ethical dimensions of these relationships, etc., etc.? And he said, don't do stupid things. Right? Uh, Cheadle Thompson and Hissom are very, very famous civil uh, uh, lawyering firm. His point here is, if you get caught smuggling stuff out, if you get caught, you'll be struck off, you'll go to prison, what use are you to the struggle, right? What use are you? So if you're, if you're uh, doing stuff like that and you get caught, your utility to the struggle is therefore, by definition, diminished if you get caught. And the other issue, uh, I can't remember if I have a quote on this one here or not. Yeah, that one, this one's quite interesting as well. And that quite often, uh, your own client may themselves be an informer. So the, the system, the state could be setting you up. Right? The, state, the state could be setting you up. So the state could, if it wants to get you disbarred, if it wants to get you struck off, and they're running an informer who's your client, and your client then says, well, you pass this information on the outside, and then as you go out to prison, they search you, they pull open your bag, da da da. You're disbarred, you're imprisoned, and so on and so forth. So you got to be. So there's there's two there's two very lively cases at the moment that you may be aware of. One is in the states. Have you come across this case where there is a, a veteran left wing uh, American lawyer who was representing uh, one of the senior people involved in the first World Trade Center bombing, who has uh, who passed information between this guy. I can't remember his name. Um, and the faction on the outside about a ceasefire that was uh, about to be called. So she's, she's from that 60s generation. She's a radical lawyer, very well-respected radical lawyer in the States. She's representing this client. Um, she was asked, actually, by the former Carter's former attorney general to represent this guy because no one wanted to take the case. She did. She stepped up to take the case. She passes on information about a ceasefire um, on the outside. Um, and, and so she, you know, she's not, she doesn't believe in... in you know, uh, jihadi struggle or anything like that, um, and she's arrested, and she, her conversations with her client were bugged. They're allowed to do that under uh, post 9/11 legislation in the states, and um, in the, she, she was initially given a two two year ten month sentence, which is increased on appeal to ten years. 
So she and she's dying of breast cancer. It's pretty hardcore, you know, um, and, and and it's for this stuff exactly, and um, smuggling stuff out. And the the other high profile cases in Israeli case at the moment, there are four Palestinian lawyers. There were five. One lawyer killed himself actually. Um, who a similar thing bugged conversations going out from the client. There's a suggestion maybe one of the clients was an informer. Um, and these four lawyers are now um, up and charged with supporting terrorism stuff. So it's real. This stuff. I mean, it's not just the start. This stuff is live and real in terms of how 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 you uh, manage it. So anyway, that the don't do stupid things is part is one. I think that'll be a little subset. Um, this uh, this is uh, one of my heroes. This is Albi Sachs. Um, Albi Sachs, as, as many of you will know, is a, a, a legendary lawyer in South Africa. Uh, he's recently retired. Supreme Court, Constitutional Court judge of the, the South African Supreme Court. He was also involved in, in, this, in the struggle and he was blown up and by and the apartheid regime and lost an arm and, and denied. Um, and you'll see here he, he facilitates the escape um, of Chris Haney. Chris Haney was the leader of the um, SACP, the South African Communist Party. Um, and now, so Albi is at night training and doing military training stuff. Like he's, you know, he's up the mountains, like, you know, stripping weapons and all this kind of stuff. What's really interesting here is his discomfiture, and you know it's about the. There's a nice literature, uh, Fiona Thingy has written about judges, and it's the management of professional self. You know, you, you compartmentalise your professional identity. The way you behave as a professional is different than the way you behave outside of it. And so, what really struck me about this one is Albi is literally he's in the underground movement. Like he is training at night. He is, you know, he's involved in not just the political end of the struggle. Uh, he's involved in it, and yet. He, by facilitating the escape of his clients, which he did in this juncture, it's about the proximity to his professional identity. Is his, his discomfiture is heightened by the fact that it's his role as his lawyer that gives him access that allows him to facilitate the escape of his clients. So even though he's up training at night and doing military stuff, the fact that he's is a nine to five thing he's done here and proximity to his own client uh, is leaves him uncomfortable. And it's quite it's very interesting how people manage. Um, those challenges. Uh, the, the <laughs> anyway, you just read this. I love this one. This is great. So this is from another legendary uh, uh, struggle lawyer in South Africa who uh, said this on the record, but I've taken I've anonymized it because I just think I don't think you should have said it on the record. Um, <laughs> that is a legendary, I mean, a proper legendary uh, struggle lawyer in South Africa. I just love the idea of, you know, you're doing your struggle lawyer stuff and then you, you can you have a brilliant military idea in very comments. And so you give Joe Slovo a shout. Slovo was a lawyer too, by the way. But Slovo is the leader, leader of the uh, MK, the military wing. And so come on over to my office, Joe. I have this brilliant plan. <laughs> I think we can hit Parliament with a mortar from the top of our chambers. <laughs> and then Joe goes... Leave the military stuff to us. Like, yeah. You just stick to the lawyer. It's brilliant, man. Uh, and he, 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 that uh, lawyer, he goes on to. Uh, so that's a lawyer stepping across the lane and leaving the lane. Well, if firing mortars from the top of your chambers is leaving professional neutrality significantly behind you, you know. So, how do people manage all of this stuff? Right, I've about an hour, four minutes. And, uh, thank you for staying with me. Um, so the, uh, the, how do people work this stuff through? Right. Well, the legal apparatus is obviously part of the rep repressive regime. This is the kind of stuff you, is going on in your head, obviously, as a lawyer in this. The organized legal profession, which, which writes your standards of conduct, right? The, the, the standards of conduct for your, for your profession are written by the Bar Association of Law Society, who are themselves usually part of the repressive um, regime. 
However, if you go to any of those, so long as it furthers the struggle, where does that stop? E.g., you know, we're firing mortars from the top of our uh, chambers. So where do where where do you um, how do you manage that? Like, I mean, so anything goes. Like, I mean, because if you go if you go there as well, the reality is, and I can I, I, I can say this with some experience. I've interviewed a lot of uh, uh, former uh, paramilitaries at home. If you're on that side, right? Uh, Political movements or military movements will eat you up and spit you out, basically, because if they are if they are um, driven towards the struggle, right? You are everybody's instrumental in terms of the struggle. So if, for example, you think if I'm a military commander in a prison and I want a, a, an informer killed, right? Because I need that done um, militarily. If if I'm putting my lawyer at risk of being disbarred and having to go to prison for a couple of years. Big deal, like you know. I mean, you know, big deal. Like that—that's not how military people think. Like there are a lot of collateral damage in uh, military struggles. So if you are in that zone of where anything goes, it can well come back and bite you, basically, you personally, and uh, because that's how—that's how military movements are. Like it's a—it it, is—it is finding your ethical base in a military movement for the military actors themselves is difficult at times, and certainly for the lawyers. If you're part of that, you see yourself as part of that. And so where I think, where in my head I've got to on this now is how people manage this in the South African context and in the Palestinian context is that they, they had a, a peer of people who, whose views they respected and trust, trust. And they take advice a lot from old heads in this and say, how would you manage this, right? And, and, and the people that you're asking share the same politics as yourself and share the same ideology as yourself. And in part, for a number, I have some more quotes, I'm not going to include them in this, but in part, for some of those older heads, it's about empowering you as a lawyer to say no sometimes to the movement and say, no, that's, I'm not going to cross that line, I'm not going to pass that information, I'm not going to do that because I think that I can, you know, I can do something more useful for the struggle or if I can call it, etc., etc., etc. But sometimes it's about the sensible head around who will give you the confidence, if you like, in terms of the management of your relationship with your clients and the broader movement, um, to say no. And also, sometimes it's about ex- acknowledging and expecting that your work as a lawyer, within the kind of framework of bourgeois legality, will by definition undermine the struggle. Right? This is a, now a, 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 a quite a prominent judge in South Africa. Um, I'm not saying you don't need to read it. Basically, what's happening is there's a protest organised by the ANC women's movement outside, uh, outside the High Court, and the, the point is to get arrested, right? They, so they've got the media all there, and they want the women to get arrested. If the women get hit by the cops, all the better, basically. It, you know, it's a protest. That's what it's meant to achieve, right? This guy's a radical lawyer. Him and all his radical lawyers are trying to get their protest. They're against the cops saying, you can't be doing this, where's your arrest warrant, blah, blah, blah. And they're getting in the way, right? They are getting in the way of this political struggle. They are in the road, literally in the road. You're trying to achieve a political objective, get people arrested, uh, create a fuss, etc., etc. And he, and he thinks he has pretty impeccable credentials. And he has said, he's being told, you're a bloody counter-revolutionary. I said, you are, you bloody lawyers, trying to stop this protest. And I'm a struggle lawyer. I am, you're a counter-revolutionary. So what this is, where, where, where this takes you is, well, sometimes, that's okay. Sometimes as a lawyer, you will be a counter-revolutionary. Like, you know, sometimes that's your job. You are in the, board, the framework of bourgeois legality. Sometimes you're going to get in the way of the struggle itself. Sometimes you're going to get in the way. It's just the way, the way it is. So, as I say, Lawyers will inevitably undermine the military political struggle at times. 
that's the gravitational pull of legality, right? That's that's kind of what happens. Law kind of sucks you in, no matter how, how critical a lawyer you think you are. Once you, like, <laughs> as you heard earlier in the introduction, I've been working with colleagues on uh, this kind of civil society draft legislation project. I thought I, I hadn't done like proper like hardcore law in 20 years, like you know sections and subsections, and all that kind of stuff. I haven't, I haven't done. I kind of, I've gone all socio legal. Like I, I haven't done proper law in a while. It bloody sucks you in, actually. It gets you interested. You, know, you, can, you find yourself going, oh, I think, there's a, I think there's, a, there's a country judgment to that in 73, I think, and there's a bit of obiter, and you find yourself sort of remembering Latin and things, you know, it's kind of bit, that's what bourgeois, like, bourgeois legality does. Like, it, kind of, it sucks you in, like, it kind of, it's intellectually demanding, and it's, you know, it has its own kind of understanding, its own kind of. It's bloody seductive, you know, I tell you. Anyway, um, there isn't much written on this stuff, which is useful, um, on, on the ethical dimensions of how people manage a relationship, other than just the easy way is just be a professional. You know, that's the, the boring version is just be a professional, just be professional, neutral. But on this, where people actually do share the, the, the uh, political ideology and, 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 and the broad thrust of a political movement, there's, there's little um, on that. Uh, what's also kind of interesting is in, on, in terms of uh, the, the dealing with the past and the past focused elements of. The South African context, for example. So South Africa is very interesting on this because as part of the Truth, the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, they held institutional hearings in particular aspects of, of South African society during apartheid. One of them was on the legal system. They also looked at the universities, actually, and the infrastructure of the universities and so forth. But on the legal system, they invited the judiciary. The judiciary didn't attend to come along and talk about the role of the judges um, during the, the, the apartheid year. But they also held institutional hearings on the role that the lawyers played in upholding the apartheid regime, essentially. And so, and, and I, I, David Dyson has written a brilliant book on, on, on this. Um, and when, what's really quite interesting is that the, the, the shaping of the, the, the gaze of the TRC on this stuff, on the ethics of lawyers, etc., was, perhaps understandably, all about the ethics of the lawyers who were supporting the apartheid regime. It's pointing in one direction. It's pointing at the right, at the statist, you know, the pro-apartheid lawyers um, within the system and what they were doing. No one asked about the struggle lawyers. Yeah. No one asked what the about the ethics of the struggle lawyers because it was just assumed to be a good thing. Like, you know, just like, it's quite interesting. So I, and I, like I spoke to uh, some of the prominent people who were involved in the hearings, you know, and you know, that never really, we didn't really think about it, you know, we didn't, I mean, like, and these are super smart people, but there was just assumption the struggle lawyers were doing a bloody good thing, fighting for justice, you know, and they were broadly, they were, um, but it was looking in one direction, the, the kind of past focus elements of the TRC on the, on the lawyers was looking in one direction, right? Uh, breaking the rules was lauded in the interest of the greater good. And, the, and this last bit is, as, as I say, I think I'll, I'll finish the piece probably on that, is about the notion of the cause lawyer as, as noble as all of that. I'll, I'll finish this wee story. So we interviewed the guy who, um, basically by the end of the, 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 uh, the struggle in South Africa, uh, ANC has become very organised, particularly in London. There's a lot of money coming through London in the anti-apartheid movement. And we interviewed the guy who's in charge. Um, who's in charge of the he's, the... he's basically the head of legal aid for the struggle in South Africa. Right? So all the money's coming through London, through London back into South Africa to, to, to do... And he's a brilliant guy. Straight as a day, you know, just a very uh, uh, impressive guy. Uh, and he's kept all the time. And... He says, you know, so he's, he's, he's like the legal aid board. He's like, the, you know, to all the lawyers' bills for struggle lawyer defending political clients in South Africa are coming to him. Right? And he says, you know what? 
Lawyers are bloody lawyers. They're the struggle lawyers, even the really famous ones. They're at it. Like, you know, they'll be, you know, if you do count up the hours that they're doing, their billable hours, you know. Oh, really? Is there 29 hours in the day? Like, you know, on this, you know, you, you're double photocopying. The usual shit like that lawyers get up to, like when they're billing, you know. And if it's all, he has this treasure trove of stuff of all of this. Like, and these are legends, like proper legends, you know. And she's like, lawyers are lawyers are lawyers. Like, you know, so we even struggle lawyers. So, also, that's what got me thinking about the ways of the, the struggle lawyer as a kind of imagined version of everything that is noble and good about your struggle. Anyway, that's, you've been very kind. Thank you. <laughs>